What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today. From GameStop to Dogecoin, if you feel like everyone around you is getting rich quick these days, you're not alone. We're going to look at how to keep your cool and when not and how not to lose money when fear of missing out in this market takes over. Plus, demand is soaring for shares of hot private companies like Clubhouse and Supply simply isn't keeping up. So how can investors still get in early on the next big IPO? And the street has high expectations for Tesla. Tonight, the stock up 20% in a month. Record profits are expected after the bell. Can they deliver or will production problems catch up with them? We've got a lot on production issues in the auto market today, but we start with the markets. Dom Chu here with the setup. All right. So, Kelly, I mean, if you look at the market, you talk about the hot things that are happening right now. We're going to look at one hot part of the market that continues to remain hot and then one hot part of the market that may be kind of cooling off just a little bit. For the Dow Industrials, the S&P and the Nasdaq, we are sitting, again, just within striking distance of a new record high. We hit one just this past Friday. The Dow Industrials just about flat. The Nasdaq, 14,106, the last trade there. Big tech, a huge focus. Remember, with those all those big earnings reports, the six biggest components of the S&P all reporting their numbers this week at some point, and a third of the S&P overall. The hot part of the market that continues to see some momentum, despite the one-third of a percent decline today, is the transportation index. It did hit, by the way, a record intraday high today, this ETF that tracks the Dow transports. It's up 83% over the last year. And by the way, it is now 12 straight weeks of gains for the Dow Jones Transportation Index. That's the longest streak in its history. So keep it on transports. And then one very hot part of the market that's cooling off a little bit now is Etsy. It's down about 4% in the, in the trade for the S&P, the worst performing stock in the S&P right now. The on- online retail platform is 211% higher over the last year. Well, now analysts at KeyBank are saying maybe, you know, it's a sector weight, the equivalent of neutral They say that the near-term potential for catalysts for earnings revisions may not be there as much as it has been in the past. They still like the long-term, but still, Etsy shares, after a massive run over the last year, cooling off a bit here. It's now the equivalent of a neutral, according to analysts at KeyBank. So keep an eye on those shares. Kelly, I'll send things back. Yeah, one of the best pandemic plays out there, Dom, thanks. Meanwhile, we are into the busiest week of earnings season with one of the highest profile names, Tesla, reporting after the bell. The stock went parabolic in 2020, surging more than 700 percent in its best year yet. But it's only up 4% so far this year, trailing and contributing uh, to the 11% gain for the broader S&P. And it's facing some major headwinds. One of its Model S vehicles was just involved in a fatal crash earlier this month. In China, one of its biggest markets, it was the subject of protests at a recent high-profile auto show. So what does Tesla need to say tonight and going forward to support its hefty valuation? Let's bring in Craig Irwin. He's a senior research analyst at Roth Capital Partners. Craig, it's good to have you here. What is the most important thing you're looking for this afternoon? I think the most important thing for the direction of the stock is really going to be what they have to say about the cut-in of the new SX um, and what this means for margins. So a lot of people are focused on margins. You know, people are speculating as far as, um, you know, whether they'll miss, how much they'll miss, how much they'll take from 
regulatory credits and, and dumping in deferred revenue. Well, well, really what matters is the forward look, and that's going to be the margin on the, the new Model S, uh, because I think that's the one that's probably likely to sell uh, a little bit better. Um, a lot of people I hear are sort of waiting for that or waited years for the new vehicle. Um, and that's, that's probably going to be the biggest determinant of the traje- trajectory out of the quarter. Interesting. So you're saying, again, we're kind of expecting the quarter to be supported by regulatory credits and deferred revenue and some of those things that you mentioned. But overall, we're talking about focusing in on what profit margins will look like for the Model S and the Model X going forward, right? What are, what are your current expectations? So I think they'll probably have mid-20s margins on these vehicles, you know, out really in the third quarter. So second quarter, there probably will be uh, a ramp to maybe mid-teens to upper-teens. Um, there's always inefficiencies on the startup. Um, you know, Tesla's managed these very, very well as, as vehicles have cut in over the last um, couple cycles. But, uh, you know, the third quarter is when the labor will be um, fully tuned. I mean, everybody's going to be operating, you know, smoothly, um, minimize the headcount on the line. And, and that's when the margins will probably be sort of mid-20s, maybe even a little bit better on, the, on those vehicles. Yeah, I know also, and we're going to talk more in depth about this in a moment, about uh, the China market for Tesla, the opportunity there, maybe some of the nervousness around, uh, you know, building on that opportunity. But I want to talk India with you for a moment because you're saying many say that could be just as big an opportunity in the long run. They've got such headwinds from COVID right now. Um, is that going to be a problem for them? Something that could kind of contribute to you know nervousness around their growth goals and, and uh, abilities to execute on those? So India, I think, is going to be a fantastic market for Tesla. I think it's going to be a fantastic market for EVs globally. Um, it's going to be just as important as China. Um, I'm not as worried about COVID there. I think we've we've learned over this last year um, that the quarantining and, and use of, of masks and uh, the availability of vaccines will make things a little bit easier for them on the rollout in India. Um, and, you know, people are just as eager to take delivery of those vehicles as they are here or in any other market. Um, you know, really what I think is more likely to sort of send tremors out there is further visibility on the Apple car, what exactly that's going to look like and what resources Apple's going to put behind this over sure. the next, you know, couple of years. Sure. So let me ask you then, as we're talking about profit margins overall for these vehicles, about two issues that are constrained, and that's labor, uh, where every industry is reporting issues. I don't know if it affects Tesla or, or could in the future. And also the chip shortage. You know, they, they don't seem to be as vocal about this affecting them, does it? Well, it could, um, but Tesla's a very important customer, and I believe they started off being priced a little bit high by many of the suppliers and have managed to recover most of that over the last couple of years. They are also the largest um, customer globally for silicon carbide MOSFETs. That's the most important chip in in the vehicles. Um, you know, you take care of your most important customers first. Hmm. So I see Tesla as, as pretty well positioned for supply continuity on the chip side. All right, so we're showing the Tesla delivery chart right now. Final question for you, what are the expectations for 2021 and beyond? What do they need to hit today? Oh, boy. So I think it would be exciting if they actually talked about the mini car. So we've been saying for a while we expect this to be made in the German facility that's coming online in the back end of the year. That's really what can uh, can lift them to some chunky numbers in 2021. Um, that is one thing that we think could uh, could get people pretty excited um, there has been some flirting around this, um, but a serious statement, serious message out there, I think would be very good for the stock, very good for sentiment. Um, and th- that's probably what I would focus on. All right, we got to go. But you sound pretty constructive on it, Craig, which made me do a double take when I looked at your price target. Is this the, yes. I, am I correct? Is this split adjusted? Your price target is 150. 
So I, I love the company, right? I love the industry. I'm a bull on EVs and bull on EV sales. I think, you know, when you have seven, $800 billion valuation, large than the total value of the, of the U.S. and European automotive market, um, and you're doing less than a million units, you know, in, in a 35, 40, billion unit, 40 million unit market, that is what we can call egregiously overvalued. Um, they will have real competition. There'll be more than 500 competing vehicles on the road by 2025 in the U.S. and Europe. Um, I think people are much better off in small cap, and that's really what that uh, articulates. Fascinating. Craig, thanks again. Good to speak with you. Thanks. Craig Irwin from Roth Capital. Speaking of Tesla, it does have plenty of competition from Chinese automakers who are looking to move in on its turf. And China is a key growth market for Tesla. In fact, our Eunice Yoon is live in Shanghai with more for us. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Kelly. Well, it seems like everyone is putting out a competitor to the Model 3, which last year was the best-selling electric vehicle in China. Uh, so uh, we followed two Tesla owners at the ongoing Shanghai Auto Show and just to see whether or not there was anything that could break their loyalty to their beloved car brand. They've come to the Shanghai Auto Show to see if any of the many Chinese Tesla wannabes can stand up. Do you like it? Uh. Zhang works in finance, Zhang in IT. Zhang bought a Model Y as his first car and dreams of upgrading to a Tesla Roadster. Zhang loves his Model 3 so much, he sleeps in it. <laughs> On their list, established car maker Geely's new Zeker 001. What do you think? It reminds me of a Model 3, he says, like that's the standard. So, so. Next stop, the ET7 by New York-listed NEO. The height is low to the ground, so I think when I drive it, uh, it will feel like a roadster. Just like a Model 3. Some EV makers didn't even merit a visit. Xpeng was passed over because Zhang doesn't like the company name. But he did find a car he does like by newcomer Wei. Tesla has problems with panel gaps. It's gotten better, but not like this, he says. That said, to judge a car, you really need to know how it drives. So after a day kicking the tires? They're all good, but uh, I still choose Tesla for now. You still choose Tesla? Yeah. How about you? So good. I think you need to buy one Tesla. And they said that the biggest draw for the Teslas compared to the Chinese models was mainly the functionality, Kelly, of the car. Uh, they said that at the end of the day, it just works a little bit better. It's much more seamless. And so uh, that's really one of the reasons why, uh, the, because of all the data collection that Tesla does, it's been able to get that experience and, and really stay ahead. It's one thing to like your car, it's another to sleep in it. I mean, that, that's some serious fandom or a, a vote of confidence, Eunice. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Does Tesla have cachet there because it's American? Does that potentially threaten to hurt the brand down the road if the Chinese play nationalist on what car you should buy? Or is it a non-issue because it all just comes down to those panels he was talking about? Yeah, well, the, at the end of the day, the consumers are going to be the ones that make the decision. But, um, but you know, in terms of, of Tesla's overall future, you know, right now, uh, Tesla is very useful to Beijing. It's uh, brought in technology, the supply chain factory, a lot of excitement over EVs. But uh, if anything is, if history is anything to go by, over time, uh, Beijing is going to grow tired of Tesla. And um, we could already see some of that uh, weariness going on today. And I think the big question for Tesla going forward is going to be um, how much it can out-innovate and also outmaneuver 
Beijing, and then whether or not it really connects with the consumers here. Because、um, one other pattern that we see is that Beijing does think twice when it comes to brands that are very, very popular with the masses. It's so well put, and it's fascinating for me to think about these executives deciding whether or not it's worth it、uh, to do business in China with everything that you said. And, and for now, the answer seems to be yes. Eunice, it's great to see you. Thanks so much. Our Yunus Yun in Beijing tonight. Our other top story today is Apple. Speaking of which,、uh, the te- one tech giant to another, it seems, and t- both with big、uh, presence in China. Apple's now committing another $80 billion to the U.S. in investments over the next five years. It's planning to add jobs and facilities across the country, further expanding its footprint beyond the headquarters in Cupertino. Josh Lipton is standing by with these details for us. Hi, Josh. So Kelly, Apple already has a footprint in North Carolina, but now it's about to get a lot bigger. Today, Tim Cook's company announcing that it's going to be spending one billion dollars in North Carolina as it builds a new campus and engineering hub there, creating at least three thousand new jobs with a focus, they say, in AI, machine learning, and software engineering. Apple says its investments will generate over one point five billion in economic benefits. It's also going to create a one hundred million dollar fund to support schools there. And contribute over 110 million dollars in infrastructure spending. Here's North Carolina's governor on the news. As Apple CEO Tim Cook told me on Saturday, with this announcement, Apple is showing that they're just not creating jobs and building a new campus. They want to be a committed partner with our state for the long term. This news comes as part of a broader announcement by Apple today that it's going to spend 430 billion dollars in the U.S. by 2026, creating an additional 20,000 jobs in this country over that time. Now, as for North Carolina specifically, local reports do suggest that Apple qualified for an incentive program for companies there. Under that program, Apple can receive grants from North Carolina totaling more than 29 million a year once they do hire those 3,000 people, or 800 million in total. Kelly, back to you. I wonder, Josh. I mean, they were criticized by Peter. Earlier this month,、uh, for their ties, so to speak, with China, just their reliance on China for its whole supply chain. You wonder, does an announcement like this meant to forestall that criticism? Is it meant to actually enshrine its work, ba-、uh, you know, workforce into the future? Because that is another major challenge for a lot of companies right now. How un- unusual are incentives like this? Well, in terms of the incentives,、um, you know, incentives like this,、um, of course, are present.、Um, we know about them. I think this one would probably be seen as maybe relatively more generous than others. It is interesting, Kelly, because you hear states saying they're going to cut back on incentives. But I think when you see this news out of North Carolina, what it's driving home is these kind of pr-、uh, programs are very red hot and popular, especially when states know they're going to have to compete with each other for the very kind of sort of high end, well paid tech jobs that Tim Cook is going to. Be creating there. Yeah, I guess it just works out well because Apple wants the workers as much as the workers want them. <laughs> so they they would stand to benefit、uh, from that dynamic. Josh, thanks so much. Josh Lipton with the Apple details today. Coming up, I've never seen it so frenzied. That's what one expert says about deal flow and valuations in Silicon Valley right now. We're going to look at what companies are getting、uh, and which ones are getting top dollar for their shares. Speaking of private companies, Clubhouse has attracted the attention of a very lucrative group. The NFL. We have those details ahead, and take a look at shares of Spotify hitting a session high after they raised prices on U.S. family plans by a dollar a month to $15.99. They're also raising prices on several plans in the U.K. Spot up nearly four percent. We're back in a couple.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. The race to discover the next big thing has Silicon Valley deal-making at all-time highs. U.S. tech startups raised a record $69 billion from investors in the first quarter. That's 41% higher than the record from 2018. The average valuation for startups tripled year-on-year to $1.6 billion. My next guest is he's never seen such a frenzy of deal-making, and he's seen crazy bids put out for private market shares. For more, let's welcome in Larry Albuquerque. He's founding and managing partner of the EB Exchange, a firm that brokers deals between investors and startup employees who want to sell their shares. Larry, it's great to have you. Let's just use Clubhouse as an example. What are you seeing there? Well, you know, Clubhouse, um, it, that, that's actually one that I can't talk about that that much. That's okay. I mean, it's obviously it's been in the news a lot. Um, there's a lot of demand for it, uh, and, the, and the valuations are... are uh, yeah, very high uh, relative to, um, you know, to the, I don't even know what the revenue is, but yeah, <laughs> I doubt it has revenue. Yes, revenue, I think, is, is a luxury. Uh, you know, that's part of the five-year yeah. plan. All right, so let's back up for a second and tell me about what it's like, the calls that you're fielding, the interest that people have in getting shares of companies that they're hoping are going to be the next Facebook or the next big IPO. It's amazing to me that the first quarter of this year, we're seeing activity peak so much. Why is that? Yeah, I think it's it comes down to supply and demand. There, the tech market's done incredibly well over the last uh, year or so, uh, several years actually. But ever since COVID hit, it's it's been um, uh, it, it just had a tremendous return. So the the, the the investors want to chase those returns. So they go earlier and earlier, which means that they're not just buying at the IPO or after the IPO, they're buying before the IPO. And there's less and less companies that are private to actually purchase now because they're going public, they're getting bought by SPACs. Hmm. Well, that's a great point in a way that democratizes it. I mean, one of sort of underpinning all of this is this question of who can and who should get access to private market share. So a lot of employees love to sign up with the next company. They can draw a little bit of a salary. They can get shares that presumably would be worth uh, something to others who want in on it. But in terms of the broader public, is it a good thing that they can access these companies earlier on with SPACs now? Um, does it mean that, you know, it's less up to, to you know, who you know and, and how much money you have in order to be one of the few who can get in this early on what could be the next big thing? You know, what I tell people is that this is not really a, a market for individuals. I would say, you know, there's a lot of protections in the private mar- in the public markets for individuals. So uh, I deal mostly with institutions, large family offices, venture funds, secondary funds, university endowments, uh, hedge funds. Uh, it's, it's a tricky space to buy uh privately. I mean, I suppose you could buy into some of the funds that are buying into the privates. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, um, 
Yeah. It, it's tough. Absolutely. So I, I guess my final question is what happens from here? You know, now that we've seen valuations, it, kind of what you're implying is that the valuations are really high. Not every company is going to become the next big thing. Uh, do you worry that some of your clients are just rushing in uh, to make a quick buck and are going to end up not doing so? You know, I think the institutions have a portfolio approach. They know they're going to lose money on some and some they're going to get a huge returns on. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not saying that I know the strategy of uh, Tiger Global, for example. I have no idea, but they buy a lot of company stocks. Some of them do tremendously well and some of them are flat or down. But overall, it seems to, to work for them and other hedge funds and, and, and other venture funds. So it's just deploying a lot of capital uh, into a market that's been just increasing, uh, you know, at, at a tremendous rate. Yeah, it reminds me of crypto where you get enough people who want just a little bit of exposure and the thing itself can become worth a lot of money. Uh, Larry, it's great to get your point of view on this. Thanks for joining me today. Larry Albuquerque. Absolutely. We'll Thank check you. back in soon. Coming up, COVID cases are surging in India, and it's not just the economy that could be affected there. We're going to discuss the potential global impact and why Wall Street's as small as the next big thing in airlines. Frontier Airlines is attracting lots of bullish attention. We'll tell you why next. The exchange is back in a few. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets right now. The Dow is up about 105 points at the highs, but it's 25, about 15 points underwater right now. Other two major averages positive, the S&P by only six points, though the Nasdaq by 85. A quick look at sectors will show you that energy and financials are your leaders, along with materials today. About a 1% gain, though, even for energy. Consumer staples, utilities, and discretionary go in the other way. Staples are down about 1% at the moment. Here are some of the movers this hour. Chip stocks are seeing some nice gains. Skyworks, Universal Display, Xilinx, and AMD all higher, with Skyworks leading the way. They're up nearly 5%. Retail, not faring as well. Skechers is down 5%. American Eagle, Urban Outfitters, and Abercrombie also similarly down. Not a good uh, session for those mall-based names. Let's look at the airlines, though. They're starting the week off pretty strong. Generally, green arrows across the board. American up 4%. And one carrier in particular getting a little extra love from Wall Street today. It's Frontier Airlines. City and Cowan initiating coverage on the stock with a buy and outperform, respectively, on strong growth prospects given its low-cost structure. 
The latter, also the reason for an upgrade to buy at Deutsche Bank. They say the airline is well positioned to capitalize on the recovery and leisure-focused travel frontier group off the highs of the session, still up about 1% today. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. The state of New York announcing a new round of easing, including office capacity limits going from 50 to 75 percent. Outdoor spectator events will also see their limits rise from 20 to 33 percent. The new levels go into effect in mid-May. First-time buyers continue to help drive record gun sales in the U.S. That's despite COVID restrictions keeping gun stores closed in some states. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, see how sales may be affected by the Supreme Court's decision to consider New York's concealed weapons limit. On Mars, NASA's Ingenuity helicopter is going faster and farther. You're watching its third flight, which covered 164 feet at a top speed of four and a half miles an hour. And one of the brightest full moons of the year, illuminating Sydney, Australia. The so-called supermoon occurs when the moon is closest to the Earth, and Americans will get their chance to see it tonight. NASA says that it'll be brightest at 11.32 p.m. Eastern Time. Very pretty to look at. It's also called the pink moon. Ooh, my son loves the moon. He always goes, moon, moon, even if we oh. see it during the day. So maybe not at 11 p.m., but I've got to get him That's outside. a little late for me, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's late for everybody. <laughs> maybe not everybody. Late for us. Yeah, uh, Rahel, thanks so much. Sure. Coming up, if you have fear of missing out when the market is hot, my next, says, my next guest says don't because that's a good way to get burned. He joins me next to explain why. Plus, could this tech stock become a major threat to the online auto marketplace? One analyst says yes. The name and the reason straight ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. With just a few trading days left in April, stocks are on track for their biggest gains since November. Fear of missing out on this rally has been driving investors into the market and sometimes into areas they may not know anything about. Could be risky. And it's the focus of this Wall Street Journal article, How to Keep Your Cool When Markets Are Sizzling. Joining me now is the Journal's intelligent investor columnist, Jason Zweig. Jason, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Good to be with you. I love what you home in on in the piece, which is about the art of subtracting from your portfolios more than adding to them. I mean, I just want to ask you about that firsthand before we get into because I, I feel like I know what you're going to say about GameStop and Dogecoin. I don't think those are going to be Jason's Zweig endorsed investments, <laughs> but I want to know what would be. And it's interesting to me that Charlie Munger, Jason, is all over TikTok. And I love it because here's a guy who sits there and says, you can own three stocks. You can own one. And that might mm-hmm. be a better way to go than owning the S&P 500. But he would probably be the first to say you do have to do your homework in that case. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for investors to separate investing from trading, from speculating, from gambling, Kelly. And look, there's nothing wrong with gambling or speculating as long as you know that's what you're doing and as long as you put boundaries around it. I mean, you don't want to let it contaminate everything you own and all your strategies. But if you're the kind of person who used to enjoy going to Vegas for the weekend or buying a lottery ticket, there's nothing terribly wrong with doing that in your portfolio as long as you segregate it and Mm -hmm. keep it from infecting the rest of your thinking. You know, I've heard that some great traders, for instance, professional traders, big time, you know, what would now be money managers, um, but they will do things like when they enter a trade, write down when they're going to exit it. Because once you're in it, 
you change, you change your mind all the time. You change based on new information and sort of to keep yourself honest. You say, no, going into it, I said, if it's up 30% or if it triples or whatever that is, that's when I exit. And exiting can sometimes be the hardest part. Yeah, it's very difficult, especially at times like this and for individual investors when emotion can really sweep you up. And, you know, you, you, you see online and through social media so many people boasting about their you know, getting rich quick. And in the old days, you used to have to go to a barbecue or the dentist's office or whatever (laughs) it might be to hear that kind of thing. But now you're exposed to it nonstop. So it's very important to set those boundaries before you make the trade so that you can remember why you're in it in the first place and have a plan for when you're going to get out. So, Jason, let's say I'm somebody who owns Bitcoin and I'm trying to figure out when to exit it. Uh, what would you say? I, and I'm sure your answer would say, well, it partly depends how big is it in your portfolio and so forth. But, you know, I guess I pick that one because stocks you can at least analyze with cash flows and project. You know, but yeah. but something like that, I mean, is the answer you everybody thinks they're going to know when to exit. But if they knew that, then they would never be the one sitting there holding the bag going, I should have sold back when it was at fill in the blank. Well, I think probably for most people, the easiest approach uh, with something like Bitcoin is to set a target percentage of your overall portfolio you're willing to commit to it or risk on it, depending on your point of view. Um, there's lots of people out there who think it's going to 200,000 or a million or the moon, and that's fine. But if it ends up being 100% of your portfolio or 50% for most people, or even 20 or 30 for many, I think that's where you might want to draw a line in the sand, and you should do that ahead of time. Because once you reach getting, once you get near that zone, you will revise your expectations Mm. and you will find it very difficult to let go unless you pre-committed to a target. Final question, Jason, do you think this moment is going to pass? I mean, this kind of unique moment where sports shut down and everybody started trading stocks and then GameStop happened. And I mean, or are there elements of this that you think are going to be long lasting? And I'm sure if I were an investor in Robinhood, I'd hope you say the latter. Well, I I think there will be some lasting effects, Kelly, but I would expect as the economy opens up, people will have better things to do all day than, you know, swipe right or left, whichever it is, I forget, (laughs) um, on their Robinhood app or whatever other trading app they might use. I mean, we would hope that people will find better uses of their time than trading stocks or crypto. Although, as I said, a little bit is fine so long as you treat it as entertainment and not as your sort of retirement account. Yeah. I Personally, I hope it lasts because it would be more fun that way. But um, yes. but I, I'd rather have people out there in the real world, uh, like you say. Jason, it's great to see you. Thank you, sir. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks, Kelly. Jason Zweig from the Wall Street Journal. And when you're thinking about FOMO, don't forget the threat of higher capital gains taxes, which Biden advisor just confirmed, by the way, could be part of the reason the market's uh, underwater. Anyway, Goldman has laid out the names with hefty capital gains that could face pressure if taxes rise. Go to CNBC.com slash pro for their list. A food fight over workers, the big battle over small business, and a new NFL play call. It's all coming up in rapid fire in just a moment. But first, April is Financial Literacy Month, and CNBC is sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's MSNBC Morning Joe co-host and NBC Know Your Value creator, Mika Brzezinski. Listen. 
Financial education is fundamental. You have to be able to do the math, whether it's a huge negotiation or a huge contract or a huge business you're running or a small business you're running. You've got to be able to do the math immediately, in your head even. So financial education is fundamental to success and it should start at a very young age for both boys and girls. Everybody, let's catch you up on a few stories that need to be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines, we welcome Michael Santoli, Julia Borston, and Casey Newton, who is editor of Platformer and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, everybody, and especially, Julia, because we have you here. We're going to call an audible. Throw out the first story, because we all know about the labor shortages. We're pivoting. We're talking Oscars ratings. The numbers just came in. They were horrendous. They were down 58%. Okay, now, here's my thing. We all know why. No one watched movies last year, blah, blah, blah. But, Julia, I, I want to ask you if they're ever going to come back. Because we take, take, for instance, NASCAR and the financial crisis. The sport never recovered. You could say they had nothing to do with one another. But sometimes, you know, it's just the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I feel like you're going to disagree with me. Well, look, I think there are two, two things at play here. One is, did people watch the movies? And the second is, is there glitz and glamour? Or is there a high-profile host and a lot of musical performances? So the answer this year was no, no, and no. Um, many people did not watch the movies. I streamed most of the movies at home. I have not been to a movie theater in 14 months. But I think the fact that the number one movie uh, that won the most awards, Nomadland, with three Oscars, including Best Picture, that was available to stream on Hulu, I think is no coincidence there. But this was not a year for big, big movies. But the other two things I think are huge factors and could help the show come back next year. There was no host, no comedian cracking jokes. There were also no big, you know, highly produced musical numbers, which is something that people often tune in for as well. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at the fact that fewer than 10 million people watched this year, Kelly, it's got to go up from here. But Casey, it's all on social. I mean, again, maybe this was just my life on maternity leave for the past. I I couldn't tell you any movies. I don't even know who the big actors are. I don't even know who the big musical acts are. But, like, I could tell you, man, if these certain people on Instagram or TikTok, like, I just don't know if it all has the same, you know, cultural relevance that it once did. And I wonder if this is just going to be the moment that it was, like, lost for good. You know, I, I sort of wouldn't be surprised if it was. When you look at the sort of programming that really breaks through in the modern era, it's much more likely to be a big show on a, a Netflix uh, or an HBO Max than some, you know, independent film that maybe shows up in a, a handful of theaters around the country. So I, I think that we really just have moved into a world where the cultural conversation has shifted to more of these really long form shows, you know, like WandaVision, Falcon and Winter Soldier, right? That's what all my friends are talking about it certainly is a nomad <laughs> julia shaking your head julia i i lay, i think casey's making a good point Casey makes a great point. Casey, you're making a great point. But here's the thing. So many movies were delayed from last year, delayed from 2020 into 2021. Come mid-year, we're going to have the theaters are going to have new top shelf movies every single weekend. They're going to be so much more. There's going to be just so much more content that's going to be in contention for the Oscars. There is a chance of there being a much bigger film nominated for Best Picture. And that's the kind of thing that drives ratings. So, yes, movie stars are now in TV and streaming series. People talk about streaming series more than they do about movies, but things could change once people right. get back to theaters. The wise Michael Santoli, well, where do you fall I on this? I think you can reconcile these views. One is, I was just looking at a chart today of the Oscars show ratings alongside overall TV network ratings for the highest rated show series. 
and they are the exact same path. <laughs> The Oscars has not had a worse experience in terms of erosion of audience over time versus regular linear television. Now, this year is an asterisk. Obviously, we've completely fallen out of trend. So I think you're never going to get back into an uptrend. You're not going to reverse the trend of, of, of total eyeballs watching this show, but it's probably going to get better than this year. This is going to be an outlier. How? And by the way, it was only a couple of years ago, Kelly, that people thought that award shows were the perfect two-screen viewing experience. Right. You watch true, Twitter true. and you watch the show. Yes, yes. It, it, the, the social would help it, in other words. But, Mike, are there investable implications from all this? I mean, you could go through and name the publicly traded, you know, production companies, you know, the theaters, you know, they, but I, I, you know, and I wonder again, if it just speaks more to the rise of, you know, the digital, the social, the big tech, and, and maybe not. I, I totally understand what Julia is saying that, you know, give it six months. Everyone's going to be talking about the next Marvel movie or whatever, and, and we're off to the race. No, that's probably true. I mean, I, I don't think that there are implications that are a secret to the market at this point. You saw Netflix's performance, you know, streaming overall representation uh, in terms of awards and production, and they are the new studios in a lot of respects. I think the market kind of understands that if you look at how Disney and, uh, and Netflix have traded for years. All right, Julia, we'll give you the final word. Look, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if people want to return to movie theaters. The theater chains believe that they do want to return to theaters, and all the numbers so far indicate that HBO Max simultaneously releasing movies on streaming at the same time they're available on theaters does not seem to be hurting the box office, but it's still a little too soon to say. Yeah, and if you thought AMC would react to this news, by the way, shares are up 11%, so maybe that tells us something. All right, let's move along. Speaking of big tech, City today thinks Google might be gearing up to become competitive in the auto industry. Uh, we're not talking about self-driving cars or anything. They're going off a report that the tech giant may be testing local car search results. It may be too early to call, but online auto marketplaces like Cars.com, CarGurus, and TrueCar could face heightened competition from the tech giant. Their shares, by the way, are doing fine today, uh, the likes of CarGuru. City has a buy rating and a 24-15 price target on Google. This is a more than $14 billion market, Casey, that they might disrupt. Should they be taken seriously uh, in, in this avenue, in this arena? Absolutely. This is a familiar Google playbook. Find a fragmented search market, figure out how you can build a better version of that, and then just integrate it right into the top of those search results. We've seen used car sales explode last year over the pandemic. More people are searching for them now than have been searching for them in a long time. Google absolutely has the ability to win in this market. And if they can fight off the uh, inevitable antitrust concerns, I expect them to play heavily here. Mike, antitrust is going to be my next question, yeah. but it, it's, it's interesting to watch Amazon and Google and all these companies. They never seem to really do anything with an eye towards, hey, this might look bad for yeah. regulators. <laughs> they just go for it. Right, because they can always fall back if they have to on the idea that this is a vast market. We are now a small piece of it, and even if we grow quickly in it, we're not going to dominate it. I know there's a lot of talk, or has been in parts of the world, different jurisdictions, about Google's practice of elevating you know, its own kind of search results uh, you know, above others. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily has crimped anything. But also, they also haven't completely overtaken these these verticals, right? If you look at travel, for example, you know, booking holdings is still out there. And, and uh, I don't think it's necessarily an all or nothing story. Yeah, that's fair. All right, let's move along and talk about the privacy battle between another two tech heavyweight giants. Apple is releasing a software update today that includes that new privacy tool, the app tracking transparency. This is the biggie. This is what Facebook has been fighting. Facebook's main point of contention is that this update will hurt small business advertising. They say that app tracking transparency could drop sales 60%, Julia, for some of these small businesses. That seems like a, a huge blow, potentially. 
That That is a huge number. I mean, a 60% decline in sales for a small business, that could put a, a company out of business. But I have to say, Harvard Business Review did say they think that 60% number is overblown. It's not that big. But there's a lot of debate here. We don't know how many people are going to opt out. I was looking through today some of these surveys, like AppsFlyer says that the majority of people will opt out of ad targeting. You know, just under 50% of people will opt in. But I've seen numbers ranging from 90% of people opting out to 50% of people opting out. So the question is, how many people will Facebook be able to target with ads? And this is not just going to affect Facebook. It's going to affect a range of companies. And I think Facebook is really going to have to draw on its tools to enable small businesses and and large businesses to target in other ways. Casey, how how do you expect users to react to this and and, and use it or turn it on or turn it off? Yeah, well, I mean, so this is something that users are essentially going to have to opt into being tracked on Hmm. Facebook. And so I think that's why we're all assuming that the majority of them are not going to. And a lot comes down to the language. You know, if Facebook could write its own pop-up dialogue and say, you know, this is the... Uh, this is a, a way to keep Facebook free. It's a way to help small businesses. Uh, you know, maybe more people would opt in, but instead they're going to have to say, yes, I, I consent to being tracked. And, you know, I think most of us in most circumstances don't want to be tracked. So I do expect it to have a, a significant effect here. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to move along for timing purposes, but I'm trying to think, what am I going to do? I don't know yet. I might, I might say yes. I don't know because if, if you connect the dots that this really, Julie, I'll give you a final chance to react to this because if I know that I'm potentially hurting small businesses, maybe I'm a little more reluctant to do so, and I know I'm being tracked every which way anyhow. I think that's, a, that's why Facebook is making that big push, and at the same time, Apple says you should get to control your privacy. So they both make very valid points, and from a privacy standpoint, you know, Apple, Apple you can't put, you know, yeah. qu- quibble with what Apple's point is there. No, no, it's like I appreciate what they're doing, but they've, now they've put me, the user, in a tough situation. I don't know what to say. All right, finally, the NFL is teaming up with audio chat platform Clubhouse to produce an exclusive lineup of programming for the 2021 draft. Fans can drop in on draft-themed rooms for pre-draft assessments, Discussions among key NFL figures will be there. They can even join the conversation themselves. It's Clubhouse's first sports partnership, but the NFL has worked with emerging platforms before. Mike, they've been very tech forward in that sense. But this is what you were saying with the Oscars, this whole idea that the second screen can help the first one. The NFL draft would be a key test of that. Well, I also think that this is an event where the ratio of talk and conjecture and opinionating (laughs) to actual substance is tremendous. So there's almost no rabbit hole too deep that people who are into this want to travel, so maybe perfectly suited uh, for Clubhouse, which I only know about Clubhouse what I've read. Just fair to slow. Yeah, I've I've dabbled and then quickly uh, left. All right, Mike Santoli, Julia Borson, Casey Newton, thank you all. It's been great to have you for Rapid Fire this hour. We have a news alert on the president's plan to increase capital gains. Let's get over to Eamon Jabbers. Eamon. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. The National Economic Council director, Brian Deese, just walked into the White House podium to defend the president's proposal here to increase capital gains tax. Brian Deese making the case from the podium that there is no evidence that the level of capital gains taxes historically has had any significant effect on the economy. He is pushing back on critics who say that if you increase capital gains taxes on the rich, what you'll do is disincentivize investment. Deese arguing that's simply not the case over the long term. He says, 
Uh, it's an important priority here uh, and a principle uh, for the Biden White House to equal out the level of taxation on work and wealth, as he calls it. And Deese also suggesting that this really only hits a very small number of people. He said this isn't just a tax on the one percent or even a tax on the half of the one percent. This is a tax that hits three-tenths of one percent of Americans. So a very small number of very rich people making over a million dollars a year will pay this tax. The Biden White House here defending their proposal from some of these critics. We'll see where it goes up on Capitol Hill, Kelly. But, you know, this capital gains tax debate uh, seems like it'll never end. Sure. And the markets seemingly have already priced it in as well. The Dow down about 30 points on confirmation. Amen. Thanks. Amen. Jabbers. Still ahead, India has reported record COVID cases for the fifth straight day. We're going to look at what it means for the world's sixth largest economy and the global ripple effects. Think pharmaceuticals. That's next. Welcome back. India has reported a record number of COVID cases for the fifth straight day with more than 350,000 new reported infections. Asima Modi is following the story for us. Asima? Kelly, a tornado. That's how a doctor in India described the situation to me this morning. Several data points from passenger traffic to rate, uh, freight volume shows the dramatic effect of India's COVID crisis on the economy. Major cities, New Delhi and Mumbai, India's financial capital that accounts for 6% of national output, under lockdown and still no signs of abating. Hospitals overflowing, a shortage of oxygen for COVID patients. President Biden spoke with Prime Minister Modi today and said the U.S. will be providing a range of emergency assistance, including oxygen-related supplies, vaccine materials, and therapeutics. Uh, but markets are getting nervous. So far in April, there's been more selling than buying of India-related ETFs just in the last five days. Outflows of $120 million and even beyond ETFs. It's been a hot destination for technology. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon investing billions of dollars in the country on this bet that India will lead Asia in terms of growth and innovation. That's why, Kelly, the pressure is really on Modi and the leadership to find solutions and figure out how they can stop COVID from spreading and uh, deaths from stopping as well. Seema, how might it affect the global supply chain? I alluded to pharmaceuticals, but in what other industries does India play a key role? I mean, there's General Electric to Apple that manufactures iPhones there. I mean, this has been a big destination, not just for consumer facing brands like Kimberly Clark and General Mills and Procter and Gamble uh, for technology and for supply chain as well. That's been a big effort underway over the last couple of years. And it's really been this administration in India that has been selling this dream to foreign investors that come here, manufacture in this country, set up shop. We will make it work. But with this COVID crisis unfolding in India, you wonder whether that that pitch really works um, going right. forward. You know, Seema, I also wonder what the, the cause of the spread is. I've read articles where they say we don't know if this is a different variant or if there were some false sense of inoculation based on. I mean, are, have we learned anything new today? about why now, why, why, today, why this is spreading there? It seems like all of the above. And I know Prime Minister Modi has been blamed for instilling a false sense of security in citizens, allowing the economy to reopen sooner than it should have, perhaps. And that's leading to COVID uh, just spreading. And as you point out, new variants that they're also finding, not just here, but now coming to the U.S. as well. Yeah. Seema, thanks uh, for keeping us up to date. Seema Modi. That does it for The Exchange today. After this quick break, I'll join Tyler Matheson for Power Lunch. It's a jam-packed show. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older 
like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.